Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. It's Cut to the Chase with Laura Curran. With me, Laura Curran. And let's bring in Laura Curran, a member of the Democratic Party. Joining us now by phone, Laura Curran. Laura, good morning. Now, here's your host, Laura Curran. Hello, I am Laura Curran, and this is Cut to the Chase, where we delve into politics, media, culture, and current events. Real conversations about real issues that affect our lives, no matter where we are on the political spectrum. All right, let's get right to it. Thank you so much for joining the podcast today. So I had something else planned But this is really timely right now, and I'm so grateful to my guest, former Congressman Peter King, for coming on to discuss the Ukraine and the sort of growing rift within the GOP about aid to Ukraine. Peter, Congressman, thank you so much for jumping on. Great to be with you. Great to be with you. Thanks for having me on. And, uh, you know, it'll be good to discuss this topic with you. So thanks. Yeah. So I heard you on Sid and Friends in the morning Speaking quite passionately, and he disagreed with you as with just as much passion. And then I read your recent column in The Hill talking about the potentially dangerous road we're going down by talking about not supporting Ukraine, vilifying Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky. Some people think $100 billion, which is the amount that the United States has given Ukraine so far, is too much. But to put that in perspective, the student loan forgiveness program is four times that, $400 billion. And you make a lot of really interesting points. And the most striking is the parallels between now and what happened in World War II. So tell me, you know, how do you unpack that analogy? Yeah, there's really several issues here. One is I do strongly believe that we should stand with Ukraine, not just for the sake of Ukraine, but it's in America's national interest to stop Russian aggression, Russian imperialism. And, you know, we can get back to that in a few seconds. But even more important to me is the fact that there's not an intelligent debate being carried on. Those who are against it just use these, you know, red meat arguments. We should take care of Americans before we send money overseas. Well, of course we have to. The fact is, if Russia becomes powerful and that's going to damage America's economy, it ends up costing American lives. So it's in America's interest to be doing this. The other one is somehow saying Zelensky is a crook. They have nothing to base that on. And also this thing that we shouldn't just be giving a blank check. Well, no one's talking about a blank check and that we should know where the money is going. Well, every dollar is being watched and it's not so much money is going over there. It's equipment, it's arms, it's rockets, it's different types of tanks, you know, different types of military equipment. So it makes it sound like we're just walking over there with bags of cash and giving it out. The American people deserve a more honest discussion than that. And for instance, you made the analogy to World War II. Well, during the 1930s, the late 1930s, Great Britain was basically begging us for support. But the American people were revved up by a group called the America First Committee saying that, you know, we should take care of America first and not worry about Europe. Well, as it turned out, Europe and Asia came to us. We ended up in a world war that cost thousands and thousands of lives billions and billions of dollars. And of course, apart from all that, or included in all that, 
You had six million Jews being exterminated mm-hmm. in, uh, in Germany and throughout Europe. So what I'm saying is that we can't just use the argument that against being involved, saying that you know, we have to take care of America first. If we are interested in America, I believe we should debate Ukraine on its merits. And my belief is that if Ukraine does lose or if Russia wins in Ukraine, despite the fact that all of more than ever before since World War II, Europe and the United States are united and standing against Russian aggression. If we allow just the constant firing of rockets into Ukraine to cause Europe to lose its will, the United States to lose its will, and let Russia prevail, that's going to, first of all, increase Russia's standing in Europe tremendously. And you know, what's to stop Poland next? What's to stop the Baltic states? And that's going to expand Russia's economic hold over countries like Germany and France and Europe, which hurts America. And China, we know, is watching carefully. Mm. They feel if we can't protect a landmass country like Ukraine with all of Europe and the United States united, how are we ever going to stop China from invading and succeeding in uh, Taiwan, which is like 90 miles from China? And there's no Western countries near it. Countries like Japan and Korea are going to be looking to see, uh, you know, should they start getting more friendly with China? Because the United States can't be counted on. So anyway, that's a lot to say. Mm-hmm. I just think there's so much involved. And I hate it when people just get up there and say, you know, we've done enough for Ukraine. Let's take care of America. That can end up causing America more than anything. I agree with you. A big part of the talking points against helping Ukraine is this vilifying of Volodymyr Zelensky. Now, he was a comedian. He was a comic actor. And I remember I'm flashing back to a year ago when this war first started, when Putin first invaded his neighboring country. He just somehow thinks it's his country, sort of like Hitler thought Czechoslovakia was his country, was part of a greater Germany. This is part of a greater mother Russia. And I remember everyone thinking, okay, this is going to last a couple of weeks, maybe a couple of months before Ukraine falls. And the fact that, you know, yes, Russia, those first few weeks got a lot of Ukrainian land. Half of that the Ukrainians have gotten back. They are tough. And Volodymyr Zelensky, I think, surprised everyone. He is tough. He is strong. I think he plays his role really well as the defender of his country. Almost like a Winston Churchill doesn't back down, keeps fighting. But yet they're calling. Of course, there's a history of corruption. So that makes it a little difficult in the country of Ukraine. But this, to me, is a true hero in our time. And to vilify him and to belittle what he's been able to do, I think, is dangerous. I agree. If there is a hero in our time, so far it is Zelensky. And to be attacking him, now let's keep in mind that not only is he politically courageous, which is hard enough to find today, but he's also physically courageous. If you recall, right before the war started, President Biden offered to fly Zelensky out of the country, give him sanctuary. Mm. And uh, he said, no, he stayed there. And I guess it was about a week or two after the invasion when he first appeared on television. I mean, because he had been obviously in hiding. He was in a siege. Kiev was being attacked. It was going to fall in 10 days. And suddenly he appeared, he's holding news conferences, he's walking the streets of Eve. Now we take that for granted. But at the time, it was almost like Lazarus coming back from the dead when we saw him. I mean, there he was. And the fact that the extent it can be, Ukraine is functioning today. The fact that he is out there, that he has rallied his people. And he was elected as a reformer. Now, again, Mm. there is corruption in Ukraine. There's corruption in every country, especially in those Eastern Bloc countries, which have been under Russian rule for so long. But I think there's no evidence of any of that with him. Mm-hmm. And for people who say that, you know, we have to account for all the money. Well, obviously, we account for all the money. Yes. But in saying that, 
they're implying that they know that he's been taking the money. Or maybe he's selling weapons on the black market. I don't know what they're talking about. Mm-hmm. But to me, this would be like attacking Churchill, saying because we know there's some you know, British bankers who can't be trusted or whatever. I mean, right. it just makes no sense. We should be building up Zelensky, not tearing him down. So you served in Congress for 28 years, serving Long Island, representing a big chunk of Long Island, and you were chairman of the House Committee on Homeland Security. So you have a a deep and wide knowledge of international affairs. Is it difficult for you to watch some of these newer Congress people who don't have the same kind of knowledge and the same kind of context come and make these these dangerous claims about the blank check and the corruption and this is terrible. And is that hard to watch now that you're no longer there? Yeah, it's very frustrating. And I don't expect somebody coming into Congress to know as much as someone who's been there. Right. But at least have a bit of modesty and humility, humility. and realize that they don't know and listen and talk and talk to people on all sides. And I, I was also on the Intelligence Committee. And being on Homeland, and I was on Foreign Affairs Committee for hmm. about 10 years, you realize how much nuance there is to all this. And you, know, you can always say, okay, I know more than you do. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying before the Matt Gates of the world or the Marjorie Taylor Greens, before they start saying that you know the money is going down a rat hole and we should forget Zelensky and all that, take time to find out what's going on. So I find it frustrating that more and more of the American people are listening to them, thinking somehow that these voices of authority and also on the Republican side, what bothers me even more is that somehow it's being portrayed as if the many Republicans in Washington are against giving aid to uh, Ukraine. The fact is, the people who are really thoughtful, people like Tom Cotton, who's a 110 percent conservative. Yeah, he strongly supports it. We can go down the line, you know, Mike Pompeo, Nikki Haley, these people, and especially Pompeo and Haley, they were involved in the international affairs with you know, the Trump administration. So they're not coming out of the left wing. They're coming from the right wing. They were there during those tumultuous years, including you know, the Ukrainian investigations and everything else. And they strongly support us uh, giving the aid that's needed. And I keep using the word aid, but really you're talking about military equipment so they can hold off the Russians with anti-missile systems. And yet, again, the impression is given is that there's just bags of cash being delivered to Zelensky which he's dividing up, I guess, among his family his and friends. Instead, we're talking about we're talking about tanks. We're talking about guns. We're talking about anti-missile systems. I mean, this is life and death. So again, it's really yeah, you're right. It is frustrating. And listen, if somebody's up there and they have an argument to make, an intelligent argument, it can be diametrically opposed to mine. I respect that. I'm not talking about. I get frustrated because they don't agree with me. I get frustrated because they're not giving any valid reasons, mm-hmm. and they're somehow trying to con the American people into believing them. Now, you could argue that it would be a Republican principle, even a right-wing principle, to stand up against Russian imperialism. And you do have someone like Mitch McConnell, who is the minority leader of, of the Republicans in the Senate. He agrees with you. He says, quote, don't look at Twitter, look at the people in power. But the Twitter people are the ones getting the attention. So I have two questions about that. Number one, well, you mentioned Marjorie Taylor Greene and Matt Gates, who are sort of the public face of anti-Ukraine aid. Number one, do you think they really mean it or is this just a way to get attention? And number two, do you think, you know, we see the numbers of the public support of American support of Ukraine start to go down. It was very high. It's still high, but it's starting to go down slowly but surely. Are you concerned about it? So, so the first part is... 
you know, is this posturing? Is this just a way to get attention and followers? And number two, are the consequences actually real? You know, it's hard to tell what their real motive is, but I, I do know that they live in silos or echo chambers where everyone they talk to says the same thing. Now, that may be a small circle, but it's everyone that they're talking to. Also, they're seeing the response they get. It's human nature, maybe. You know, you look at Twitter and suddenly you see 50,000 people are agreeing with you just by putting out a, you know, two or three line statement. So I just think they are living in their own world. Matt Gates, I think, in particular, enjoys the celebrity. I don't know if Marjorie Taylor Greene really understands. I mean, she, her whole defense to all the terrible things she said over the years is that well, she didn't know what she was saying. She was just, you know, just learning. Unfortunately, she's still in that stage, but, but she gets an audience. She gets, whether she's calling for a national divorce or cutting off aid to Ukraine, yeah. somehow people are listening to her. And what was the other part of your question there, or the second part? The fact that the public American support is starting to dwindle yeah. slowly. I mean, it's still quite high, but we're seeing it start to go down. And that, personally, I think that's dangerous, but I want your opinion. No, I, I think it's very dangerous because, you know, the fatigue factor can set in. And Russia has, you know, so many more people, so many more soldiers, so much more weaponry than Ukraine. Even though Russia has lost, I guess, every battle, they've been engaged in, they feel that they can wear out the Ukrainians just by, again, bombarding them and just you know, trying to isolate them. So long as we and Europe keep giving Ukraine arms, they'll be able to hold off Russia. But it's fatiguing. And you know, so mm-hmm. the American people, they have their own economic problems. They're trying to make ends meet. Mm-hmm. And they see this back and forth. These people are killing each other. They, they've been killing each other for centuries. Why should we stay engaged? Now, a year ago, it was different because they saw it as being out and out Russian aggression. I just think the fatigue factor is setting in, which seems to be same thing back and forth every day. But for the people living in Ukraine, it's not the same thing. I mean, or maybe it is, but for each different village that's being attacked, it's new to them. There's people being killed, there's uh, homes being destroyed, there's jobs being taken away. And so we, it's important, I think, this is where President Biden, and basically I think he's done a good job in Ukraine. I think he should speed up, though, sending the weapons because uh, we always seem to be sending the weapons like right after they were needed. Mm. And it gives Russia an, an advantage there. But I think he has to lay out something, not just say we're going to stand there as long as we have to, say why we're staying there, not just for Ukraine, but, you know, for America. But uh, the fatigue factor is very uh, debilitating. And that's where I also am very critical of President Trump. Mm-hmm. I mean, he really sounds like what I used to call, like, you know, the 1960s flower children, the anti-war <laughs> crowd that was just demonstrating, burning the American flag, all of that. He's using the same rhetoric they did, talking about how, you know, the industrial machine, the war hawks, the generals, the national security advisors, they all want war. And they want America to be in, you know, wars that will go on forever, unnecessary wars. Well, think of some of the people we're talking about. And these men and women have put their lives in the line. These are people who are dedicated to their country. You can agree or disagree with them to somehow to think, that these people want war for the sake of war, yeah. especially generals who have been there. If anything, I mean, I've spoken to people like General Jack Keane. He's critical of the military in a slightly different way. He says because they've seen so much death and destruction, they're actually less reluctant to get involved. So hmm. Trump to be saying that somehow these generals forcing a war on us is wrong. I felt good the last few days, like, for instance, General Petraeus, who I think is like the military genius of our time. Mm-hmm. He reached out to me. He said, we have to keep this argument out there. We can't allow Ukraine to fall and we can't allow the American people to be deceived. And that's really what's happening right now. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? 
It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. You know, it's interesting that you mentioned Trump and uh, you see DeSantis, who potentially wants to take on Trump for the presidency. At the beginning, he was all for uh, military aid to Ukraine. Now he's hedging. He's equivocating. He's is he dare I say it? I think from one former politician to another, I can ask, is he doing the <laughs> political thing, putting his finger up in the air and seeing which way the winds are blowing and just going there? The reality be damned. DeSantis was 100 percent in support of America defending Ukraine and Europe defending Ukraine. Now he's using terms like a blank check. I mean, that that's become like a code word yeah. for corruption. Uh, I don't know where that came from, but nobody's talking about a blank check. I mean, think how long it took them Ukraine just to get basic weapons system like the Javelin. We the administration waited months before they gave them that. Right now, uh, by President Biden is not giving them the F-16s they I, I believe they need. Mm. So if, there's no blank check. I mean, all this is thought out. I think maybe it's thought out too much in detail because they're afraid of different consequences. But what what Ron DeSantis, he was a military person himself, very smart guy. But I think what he's doing is polling mm-hmm. the Republican primary voter. And let me just say this. I'm out of politics now. Basically, 10 percent of each party is crazy. Or <laughs> really Amen to that. Yes. And in a primary election, you're lucky if 15 to 20 percent of the voters come out. Well, you know that 10 percent is coming out no matter what yeah. in a primary. So they have a disproportionate impact on the party. And right now in the Republican Party, in these primary states, the hardcore right, I think, is buying Trump's argument about uh, Ukraine being a source of corruption and a waste of American lives. I mean, waste of American money, mm-hmm. and it's putting uh, America last rather than America first. All those arguments, DeSantis sees that. So he's not certainly not going as far as Trump. But I think he wants to say enough to appease those people. To me, whether it's appeasement in Munich or appeasement in the Republican primaries, you don't win by appeasing. Right. And I don't think Putin is the kind of guy who would just stop at Ukraine. Just the fact, I don't, you know, what's the psychology of this guy? He thinks that, okay, this is my country. I can just go in and take it because I want it. And forget that 200,000 people, my own countrymen, are killed and wounded so far. That doesn't matter. So you brought up Biden. One thing that I hear a lot is would Putin have done this? Would he have invaded Ukraine if Trump were still president? Everyone saw what happened in Afghanistan. It was a colossal (sighs) tragedy, my opinion. Trump is a wild card. Who knows? You know, there's one thing we can look back and say, oh, coulda, shoulda, woulda. We'll never know because it's a hypothetical. But Trump was, you know, kind of seen as, ooh, this guy, you never know what he's going to do back. He could do anything. Do you think there's any value to that? And if so, does it matter? Because at this point, we're past that. Yeah, we are past it. But I do think it's a you know, really valid point. No one moved against the United States at all. I mean, China didn't. Russia didn't. Uh, when Donald Trump was the president, I think they thought he was somewhat of a wild card. And actually, with all the talk of him being you know, close to Putin, he actually killed many. He, he ordered the killing of many Russian troops that were down in Syria. Russia had troops in Syria. Hmm. And we attacked them. We killed them. We also gave Ukraine weapons to use, which the Obama administration wouldn't do. In fact, I remember at that time, I guess it was the Ukrainian president, Poroshenko, come over to Congress and said, we're begging for bullets and you're giving us blankets. And that Mm. was basically it. So so Trump's record was more anti-Russian than people thought, or maybe Mm. more than he even realized. 
and China, uh, I think they saw that Trump would do whatever he had to do. Now, it wasn't always reliable, and uh, but I think the fact of the, you know, the wild card factor, I think, really did help us. Now, whether we could have sustained that for another four years, I don't know, because most of his foreign policy people have left. John Bolton, Secretary of State have left, Secretary, Secretary of Defense Mattis have left. So his key people have left, whether or not he could have held it in the second term. But no, I think odds mm-hmm. are that at least for the first few years of a second Trump term, I don't think Putin would have done this. Yeah, I think you're right. We'll never know. Interesting, we're recording this on Friday, the 3rd of March, and Olaf Scholz, the chancellor of Germany, is going to be visiting President Biden. We think potentially to, you know, we'll know more when this podcast actually airs, but to, you know, ask him to back off China. But that got me wondering, and also this is a theory I want to float by you. This affects Europe very much. We look about the the energy issues, natural gas, energy flowing from the the east to the western part of Europe. They've been impacted by this. So even if you don't really care about the Ukraine, this affects the whole continent. And these are our allies. These are our close allies. We're talking about France and Germany and the UK. These are people who, with whom we have good relations. And we need that. We need them to be strong as well to keep the balance of power. So my argument would be to people like, why do we care? This is so far away. I did not even know where Ukraine is. This is going to hit home much more closely than you might think. In many ways. One, it'll show that Putin was able to wear down the entire NATO alliance and the United States. So that gives him that impact and that power over Europe so he can make more inroads economically also. I mean, this is going to hurt us economically because we Again, we have this constant trade back and forth between us and the European Union, countries within that. If they start going into the Russian economic orbit, and certainly he can apply the you know, the energy uh, issue over them, it's going to push us further from Europe, which we need economically. Mm. Militarily, we certain, certainly need it. And, you know, Russia can certainly say there's a part of Poland that was always, you know, within Russia's sphere of influence. So they attack parts of Poland. If we can't defend Ukraine, does anyone think we're going to be able to defend Poland? Or if they go into Latvia or Estonia or Lithuania or parts of Romania, we can go through. And it can be a, just a steady growth of Russian power and dominance in Europe. China will see that. And countries like Japan and Korea and the Philippines will see that if we couldn't stand against uh, Russia and Ukraine, how can we stand against China when it comes to Taiwan or parts of Asia? So you're going to see countries, I believe, drifting away from us economically and militarily toward China and toward Russia. Not that they will ally with China or Russia, but they will certainly not resist their aggression as much. And again, China is moving everywhere in the world, whether it's Central America, Africa, Europe. Mm-hmm. They're you know, moving in economically. They're building up their Navy. I think the Navy is bigger than ours is now. And also, you know, you have Iran is involved in this now, giving drones to Russia. If we lose control of being able to have a large say in which direction the world was going in, you know, Europe was, it's true, they were killing each other for centuries. Until the United States, after World War II, we became the dominant power. And there was no war in Europe for the last 75 years, except for really a smaller one in Bosnia, which the U.S. resolved that. So we have maintained a sense of permanent peace or at least lack of war in Europe. That's going to break down if Russia starts moving and countries start moving into the Russian orbit. And we start appealing just to the populist tendencies of people who just think about themselves or their own country rather than the larger picture. 
And we'll, again, you know, if you don't stand united, we're going to fall disunited. You know, it's such a reminder to everyone the sound bites, the blank check, you know, all of those kinds of things, they're all focus grouped, they're market tested. Do your research, do your homework, be familiar with history. There's always a lot more going on. So, Peter, I'm going to let you go in just a minute. But if there's one thing that you and I have such a sense of urgency about this on a global scale. So if there's one thing that you want to leave with the readers to just keep in, I mean, with the listeners to keep in mind as they see this fight play out and it's going to get hotter, I can predict, what would that one takeaway be from from our conversation today? That if this slips away from us and we end up in a, a series of constant small wars, I say, William, talking about the world, the United States is going to be drawn into that. You go back to 1938, 1939, 1940, America felt they had to stay out. The British felt they had to compromise with Hitler. Within just several years after that, the world was at war. Uh, millions of people were uh, either killed or wounded. In fact, again, there's genocide of Jews, but also all the American soldiers that were killed in Europe and Japan. It's not easy. The world is not easy, and we just can't live in our own echo chambers. We have to be willing to make the sacrifice, and standing strong now will save American lives and also save American jobs, and it will preserve a sense of stability so our children and grandchildren can live in a world of peace. Peter, I want to thank you so much for coming on on such short notice. And if you like what you hear, listeners, please like and subscribe. And just keep getting, keeping yourself informed. Don't fall for, don't fall for the sound bites. Thanks, Peter. Well, thank you very much. As always, thank you. Take care.